Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by America's Choice Windows, where you'll get 10 windows for just $36.80. Let's head to Farmer's Branch. And Carl, how can I help you? Why, hello there. Hey. Uh, listen, I'm a frequent listener. Uh, what I have is four th- this is a driveway resurface question. Okay. I have I have four thousand square feet of concrete. Twelve hundred of it is what I call the drive up appeal. Uh, it is solid concrete. I don't have a problem particularly with it. A couple of cracks and stuff like that. But I'm thinking about uh, resurfacing it. I've looked at epoxy stone with. Uh, um, I've looked at there's a rubber based one that's of interest. There's one that's a decorative pattern where they troll it on and stuff like that. I've looked at complete replacement besides the basic patch. Here's the challenges that I have. Some of them they require, first of all, are expensive, but I'm interested in quality as much as anything. But some of them um, require like a dollar, dollar plus square foot reseal every year or two. And uh, every time I ask for samples where it has been installed for like four, five, six years, I get crickets. Yeah. I don't, yeah, so I don't know if there is a, is a good solution. I can live with it the way it is, but I'm just looking at spiffing it up. Well, I can tell you that there, there have been many, many of those jobs done, and they do hold up well. The reseal is an important part of it because that's what will keep it lasting for years to come. I'm not sure why they can't give you some addresses to take a look at it. Maybe it's because they just don't have permission from the property owners, you know, to let people drive by and look at it. Uh, the epoxy stone that you were talking about, you know, yeah. McDonald's used to do that with all of their stores. They switched it over to tile years later, but uh, and they used to maintain theirs fairly well. Uh, you could tell when they quit doing it, though, when you quit maintaining like an epoxy stone, it, the rocks will start coming off and yeah. big chunks will, will separate. Truthfully, if I had my choice and money wasn't the issue, I would do one of two ways. I would just leave it regular concrete or I would go with a stamped concrete. Okay. Now, the stamped concrete... Uh, you know, because it's concrete surface, looks great, holds up well. Uh, your biggest issue that you can run into with the stamped concrete is if you don't reapply the sealer over the top of it, it can start to fade and your color dissipates on it. But the surface itself will will still stay there. And so even at that, it doesn't look bad. Okay. And that is basically the stamped concrete is uh, rip and replace, but with uh, the stamping yep. done at the end. Yep. Okay, I'm going to look that particular direction, especially for the 1,200 feet drive up. Okay. Yeah. The rest of it is not that big a deal. I can even do some of the uh, uh, lather on top stuff myself, and it's really not that big a deal. It's alongside the house, and then there's a parking spot in the back of the house. That's no big deal. Yep. Uh, so. Anyway, I'm going to look into that. So thank you very much for your Now, there, there was, there's one other thing. Let me ask you just real quick. Uh, sure. Because do you have space enough to go on top of what you have right now? Uh, probably do, yes. Okay. One thing you may want to consider then is instead of uh, resurfacing the concrete, leave your existing concrete there. Go on top with the two-inch paver stones. Two-inch two inch thick? Yep. 
they're, um, they're extreme. They're, they'll hold up very well. Uh, you know, the, the two inches thick enough, it, it's, it's not going to be glued down or anything to the concrete. It'll float on top of it. Uh, but the concrete will act as a great base for the paver stones. And they can actually, work. you can actually put patterns into it with different colors. And it, that is gorgeous. That, that actually works. And then that solves a couple of other tribulations. Um, and yeah, how to keep it from sliding off to the side if you think it's loose. They they just have some rail things that go on the side where the concrete is, and then once your that dirt works. comes into the, it's it's not going to move at that point anyways. Okay, that's the best solution, best sounding solution I've so far. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Good day. Take care. One eight hundred two eight eight nine two two seven. Yeah, paver stones really are gorgeous. They they're extremely durable, uh, and if you've got concrete under them, I mean, you really don't have to worry about it. If you are going to lay it on an area without concrete, you put a sub base under it, and you can lay it. And the the nice thing about it, should you ever have to redo it, you can pick them up and reuse them. You just put a new base under it. And so, you know, it's, it's not like you ever throw the money away. The water pressure in some parts of our 51-year-old house has become very low due to clogging occurring in the old galvanized pipes. Rather than wait for leaks to occur, probably at the worst possible moment, I'm considering restoring the pipes using the ACE Duraflow process. One attractive aspect of this process is that there is minimal restoration of sheetrock, etc. afterwards. Is this a method that has a good track record? Would you recommend it as opposed to replacing all the pipes? Absolutely. Now, I have a plumbing company. We do the uh, hex pipe pipe for replacement, but the Ace Duraflow is an absolute viable candidate, whether it's old galvanized pipes or copper pipes. And the way it works, they actually take off all the... fixtures. By that I mean all the cutoff valves and things so that the pipe is opened up. They basically sandblast through the pipe. They're using like walnut shells or something like that but it cleans out the pipe. Then they blow an epoxy resin through the pipe that coats the inside of it. So you got a metal pipe with an, a, a plastic coating on the inside. You never have to worry about leaks again. And you didn't have to tear up all the sheetrock. Typically, the only places where they have to do any type of sheetrock access is if there's a valve, like, say, a shower faucet that doesn't have an access panel on the backside. There's no way for them to disconnect the pipes from it. They're going to have to open up the sheetrock there in order to access it. Other than that, though, they really don't have a lot that they have to tear up. So it has minimal damage to the home in order to redo the pipes. Now, if you ever have a plumber come out, you do need to notify them that, hey, this has been done because it does change a little bit how the plumber has to deal with the pipes. But it is a very good alternative to, again, replumbing the entire house. And, uh, again, if you're looking for it, it's called Ace Duraflow. It's a quite a unique little process of taking care of your water pipes. It does not work on sewer pipes. It's strictly for the water lines. Sarah, this is Jim. How can I help you? Hey there. Thanks for taking my call. 
I have a question about our brick home. We are wanting to paint it, but we aren't sure what problems we might encounter, how often we would have to repaint it, and we just kind of wanted your thoughts on that. Okay, the biggest problem people run into is peeling paint, and typically that's a result of not properly prepping everything. Uh, you're going to want the brick to be totally dry, so you can't do this after a rainstorm. Usually I'd give it a couple days after a rain to dry out thoroughly. They make a special primer to put on brick uh, when you're painting a brick-and-mortar house. So make sure that you use that because that bonds better. And then it's just a matter of painting over that whatever color that you want. Always use a high-end paint, though, uh, because if you use a low-end paint, it's just not going to last long enough. Uh, as far as how often do you need to paint, it all depends on the paint that you use. If you use a, a high-end paint, just like you would on a, a wood siding or hardy siding, uh, it's going to last for, you know, seven, eight, ten years and then have to be repainted. Your biggest okay. fear factor, though, is getting moisture behind that allows that paint to start peeling. Okay. We live on a lake. Is that um, a problem with the, the brick as far as it being dry? No, no, because okay. even living on the lake, the only thing that's going to really get the brick wet is sprinkler systems, rainstorms, things like that. So, okay. you know, once you've got it dry and, and put your uh, seal and primer on there, you'll be fine. All right. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. And, and that's it. I mean, high-end paints, they hold up. They last better. They look better longer. You get what you pay for when it comes to paints. That works better. Chris, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. I enjoy the show, Jim. Thanks so Thanks. much for all you do. Hey, um, listen, I've got a house uh, over in Shady Acres. It's, it's elevated, right? It's on, a, I guess, a pier and beam. But underneath the, you know, in the crawl space, there's a bunch of, it, it looks like bat insulation, right, where they kind of put it up underneath or maybe wired it or something. But it's yeah. Much, it just, it looks like, one, it looks like it, it could trap a lot of moisture, although there's a rain under there, but I just... It's starting to kind of fall down and look kind of crummy, and I just, is there something I can do with it, or do I need to be thinking about saving money to replace it, or? Take it out. Take it out. Yes. Uh, could Because you, you it were exactly right when you said it looks like it could hold moisture. It does. Whether it's really? fiberglass, cellulose, any of those, when they're up underneath in those crawl spaces, the, mm -hmm. the moisture from the soil itself gets up into it, and that insulation will hold moisture against the wood and causing it to rot. Some Even of the most expensive it's, it's jobs. Know, it's three and a half feet up above the above the ground. And that's, oh yeah, you still. Even yep. still, huh? Wow. Some of the most so expensive that... jobs I've done have been ones where they left that insulation and the moisture ate the wood up. Wow. Yeah, the house is it's was built in 2015, so it's relatively new. But like I said, I get underneath there, it just looks so crummy. Like, it just looks like a mess. Yeah. So if, is now that going to change? I'm sorry? If it, if if you want to insulate underneath there, the only insulation I, I recommend that anybody uses is a closed-cell foam insulation. Uh, and you only need to spray like an inch or two on there. It doesn't need to be a, a six-inch type insulation because you're really only buffering the air between your floor 
and the crawl space. Okay. Will it, I guess, I guess it won't have it. If I took it out entirely and didn't replace it, I wonder if it would have a real, you know, a kind of real effect on the, you know, the, the house itself as well as far as heating and cooling. Minor. I mean, minor. Okay. That's yeah. good to know. Man, I'm glad we got a chance to talk. Thank you so much, Jim. Yeah, and, and I will tell you, the last one I did where somebody had that insulation and, and they left it was $36,000. Oh, my goodness gracious. Wow. And I bet insurance doesn't cover that kind of stuff. Not a bit. <laughs> Great. Thanks again. You bet. Take care. Bye. Uh, yeah, so if you've got a crawl space and you've got insulation in it, take it out. Mike, welcome to KTRH. How can I help you? Hi, Jim. Thanks. Uh, is it necessary to descale a tankless water heater? Yes. How often should that be done? And is that something I can do myself? Or is... Most of the manufacturers recommend it's done once a year. Okay. And basically you have to open it up where the inlet's going in to the water heater. Mm-hmm. You run a solution through there capture it on the other side, you know, flush the system out, and that's really all that's involved. But uh, most of the manufacturers do want a plumber to come do it. Your question, can you do it yourself? Absolutely. <laughs> Should I do it myself? If you want to maintain the warranty from the manufacturer, probably not. Okay. Okay. Okay, but it's a good idea to do it. Well... Oh, now, see, now we're into a different realm, a different question here. Okay. Uh, I have one in my house yes. that I've and I probably shouldn't even say this. I've had it for at least seven, eight years. I've never done mine. Right. Well, we've had ours, oh, a couple of years now, and, and uh, I haven't done mine yet either, but, uh, but I'm starting to think maybe I should. I haven't really noticed any difference in, in any performance. I mean, I still have plenty of hot water, et cetera, but... I, I was thinking it was recommended uh, when we had it installed, and I just haven't done it yet. Yes. Well, here's where it becomes an issue. If you have a problem with it mm-hmm. and it starts you know, having a leak or anything like that, the manufacturer's not going to cover it if you didn't have this done right. on a regular I, basis. I see. Okay. Now, this kit, the solution kit, is that something I can get at uh, a, a home, a house, a, any... Bach, you'd, you'd have to go to a plumbing supply store. I see. I see. So more plumbing supply, Ferguson's, uh, Morrison's, all of them will have it. Okay. But do I have to turn off the water at the source? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks, Jim. You bet. Take care. Bye. And the the different uh, tankless water heaters have different ways of doing it. Some have a port that you actually have to hook up onto to flush the system out. Others, you got to disconnect the the main lines going in. It's all different. Typically, if you look at the manufacturer's owner's manual, it'll have it in there. Let's head over to the Heights. And, Larry, this is Jim. How can I help you? Yes, uh, I have a bungalow I live in. Actually, it's my grandma's house. Uh, They're fixing to build three townhouses right next door. They just leveled the old bungalow next to me, and they're going to build three townhouses. How can I be assured they will put a French drain in there? Because you know they're going to build the ground up. Uh, how can I assure I won't be drowned every time we have a heavy rain? Are they going to do the right thing in putting a French drain to the street? Well, code now requires they cannot drain water from their property to your property. Uh, everything has to be 
addressed in getting their permits and everything as far as making sure that the water is flowing to the street. So the city should take care of that for you. Uh, other than that, you're just going to have to watch and, and see, make sure they're not sloping the ground towards you. A French drain's not really what you're going to be looking for. It's, it's going to be the surface water that you're more interested in. Well, if they build it up, how do we? How do I prevent getting getting all that? Uh, because they'll they'll actually have to have uh, ditches and stuff to drain the water to and f out of there. In most cases, they're they're requiring retention ponds now. Uh, you know, if it's a big enough area to hold the water that gets on the property, but at the very least. Even a, a regular residential lot cannot drain from your neighbor's property to yours. It has to drain out to the road. Right. Well, hopefully they'll go by the rules. I'm going to be watching closely. And, 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 and so will the inspectors. Gonna... Let me tell you, after Harvey last year, uh, the inspectors are taking it extremely serious, that the way water drains. So I really don't think you'll be having any issues with that. Appreciate your input. Thank you. you bet. Take care. Okay, got an electrical question that came in. Recently, we noticed our lights flickering in our breakfast nook. Then we noticed a floor fan that seemed to be struggling and lagging. In both cases, it was not constant, but it was more than just once or twice, but rather more like 15 to 20% of their runtime. We called Encore regarding the problem. And they sent two different technicians out. Each checked the power and both stated that the power was clean and there was no high or low voltage on their side of the meter. Our question for you is what could be causing the problem? We are concerned there may be problem that is going to result in a fire or some other situation other than some intermittent inconveniences. Do you have any ideas? Do you have someone you would recommend to investigate the problem? We would be most grateful for your help, Bill. Well, Bill, it can be several things. And just because the power company comes out and checks the power and says, hey, it's clean, it's clean on both sides, they actually have the ability to hook up a monitoring system and leave it on for a week or two weeks, whatever, and monitor the power that whole time and be watching for spikes. So it can be a spike or a brownout that you're getting from the power supply just because it wasn't happening that split second that they were doing their check doesn't mean it's not happening. But the other things that can be causing it is actually in your breaker panel itself. If you've got um, a main breaker that is loose and not grounding properly if the house isn't grounded properly, uh, if you've got something in the electric box going bad, all of those can cause the same issues that you're talking about. And to answer your question, yes, it can be a fire hazard. More than that, it can also be very damaging to your air conditioning, refrigerators, TVs, all your different appliances. It can shorten the life of them tremendously. So who do you call? Typically, you can start with an electrician because they can check the electric box and make sure that everything is up to snuff, and that way you don't have to worry about a short causing a fire or anything like that. Then, after he's checked everything out, if it's still happening, you know, if he didn't find anything wrong, 
that's where I would contact the power company again and let them know you want to have a monitoring system put onto your power supply to see if you can trace down where the issue is coming from. As we're putting more and more things on our power grid, this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem all the time, especially during peak usage times. Hi Jim, getting ready to go over our existing comp shingle shed roof with purlins and galvanized R-panel. Would you recommend rolling some foil barrier over the shingles before attaching purlins in the metal? And they got an attached a one minute video of exactly what we'll do except for our roof has existing shingles. It is a cathedral ceiling and a 30 year old two story log cabin and it really can get warm up there. Oh yeah, there's no ridge vent and he wants to add one or more ventilation ceilings is a six inch tongue and groove pine six inch rafters with fiberglass insulation then of course sheathing and shingles we do have some mildew stains at apex of the ceiling in spots but they have been there for 20 years and haven't seemed to gotten any worse Sorry for the long question, but we've gotten so many options from contractors from need to pull the insulation and do roof vents to do nothing. It's been there for 30 years. The solution I presented to you initially seems to make most sense to me. Love your show, by the way, Wes and Jan. Okay. First thing, you don't need to take this all apart. Leave the insulation where it's at. I do agree with you on putting down some radiant barrier. you got to make sure you use the right radiant barrier. But here's where we're going to have a little bit of an issue. I'm going to tell you you need to take those shingles off. And here's why. If you go over those existing shingles and you leave them there, your new metal roof is going to outlast those old shingles. And it's not so much that the old shingles will deteriorate and start falling apart. What's going to happen is they're going to deteriorate and start curling up on you. And they will start touching the metal roof. And that's going to negate what your radiant barrier is going to do for you. So what you can do is strip those shingles off, which is not that big a deal. Put your, your felt down. And I recommend you take a look at the new synthetic felts rather than going with a tar-type felt. Put your radiant barrier over that. You've now created a dead air space. And so your metal roof is going to help with some of the heat. Your radiant barrier is going to stop the rest of the heat. I shouldn't say the rest. It'll block 95% of it if you use the right radiant barrier. And we're going to get to that. And then that's going to let your insulation that's in there do better. You got six inches of insulation. I, you'll be just fine. I've got, I've got a, a third of my house has no insulation, just a radiant barrier. So I'm going to tell you, call DFW Radiant Barrier and Insulation so they can hook you up with the right radiant barrier for what you're doing. You can reach them at 972-299-8939. As far as ventilation, because that's an enclosed area there, ventilation is not going to do you a heck of a lot of good. I wouldn't at this point be worried about putting ventilation the radiant barrier is going to buy you a world of good on this type of situation if you are going to try to ventilate it 
that place where you're making the dead air space between the metal roof and your uh, plywood top, that's actually where you could run some ventilation if you wanted to. I got to be honest, if it was me putting it in, I wouldn't bother with it. I'd put that, take those shingles off, put the radiant barrier so everything is nice and flat, put my purlins in, put my metal roof, and live life well. I think that'll take very good care of you. Bob, how can I help you today? Uh, taking my call, uh, I'm going to expand my uh, patio, and I was curious what type of construction joint do I need between the existing patio and the new port? Does that need to be tied together, or just what's the what's the best method? Well, you really do want to tie them together because if you just cold join it, you know, butt one up to the other and don't tie them together, the soil is going to move, and when it moves, you're going to have one piece of concrete higher than the other. So typically what you're going to want to do is is just drill in and stick some dowels, epoxy them in so that they reach across to the new concrete, and then you can tie your new rebar to the old rebar, you know, to the rebar pieces that you tied across. Right. And that'll tie everything together. Um it's just gonna it's just gonna be an outside patio, right? You're not gonna try uh, yes. to Okay. That is uh, correct. Okay. As far as something to put between the two pieces of concrete, you typically do wanna put an expansion joint there because the concrete does expand and contract and that'll give it some room to do that without splintering on each other. And uh, can, what kind of material would you suggest? Yeah, you can use just a uh oh a redwood board you can use they they make the black composite material and they make it very thin it doesn't have to be anything wide that you put in there just that very thin black composite can go in there and then after you pour the concrete you could put a rubber sealer over the top so that it matches and you don't have to get you don't get water going down in right well okay well great thanks uh i had some different opinions given to me so i appreciate uh, i know contractors love to just butt them up to each other and it'll be fine because they got their check they're gone and they don't have to worry about it anymore sure but five ten years from now is when you'll have the issue all righty well thank you so much one other thing don't let them use the wire mesh use number three rebar okay on everything yeah put it on you know 12 or 16 inch centers and the main reason the reinforcing is in there to hold the concrete together because all concrete's going to get some cracks in it. Wire mesh is always under the concrete because they're walking on it when they're trying to do the finish and spread the concrete and all that. And they'll all tell you, oh, well, we hook on it and pull it up. Reach down, grab your bootstraps, and pick yourself up. Ain't happening. And neither, <laughs> okay. neither is that wire mesh coming up. I go under a lot of different concrete, and that wire mesh is always under the bottom. Hi, Jim. This is not a home improvement question, but a new home building question. I'm trying to land on a builder and have come across one that uses the spray foam insulation instead of fiberglass. I understand it can be more expensive, yet also save on AC size. So depending on roof pitch and other factors, over a few short years, the added expense pays for the foam. I'm curious more to the short and long-term effects of sealing your home up with foam versus cost. Foam inherently has a gas-off period, which, yes, it does. Does sheetrock block this? 
i.e. does the foam gas off leave the house or gas off into the home for how long as okay are there additional mold or other environmental factors that are more long term i presume you may see this in some home repair looking for op opinion on best option not so concerned about cost factors many thanks okay the mold issue that you typically deal with from a foam standpoint is when they encapsulate the entire house with foam do the walls do the attic everything and your house is totally dependent on the air conditioning system to keep all the moisture at bay uh, to circulate air properly everything's got to be working 2AT in that air conditioning system which doesn't always happen and so these homes tend to have what's called sick home syndrome you literally have to bring fresh air in from outside when you build a home this way what I typically recommend if you're doing new home construction use the foam in the walls because inch for inch you're gonna get the best R value you're gonna seal up air gaps and all that in the walls and then use fiberglass in the attic that avoids all the sick home syndrome you still get the high energy efficiency because typically in the attic you can an R49 foam or an R49 insulation is still or fiberglass insulation is still R49 you're able to put as much fiberglass in there typically as you want to get the R value up that keeps the house still breathable where you don't have to worry about all these other issues with it so I understand it's not as much of a cost factor but it's also a common sense factor let's keep the house breathable in our climate now if we were dealing if you're up in a northern state you know where you're dealing with the this harsh cold climates encapsulate the house that's what that system was originally designed for but in our climate here use it in the walls use fiberglass in the attic let's keep the house breathable so we don't have to worry about sick home syndrome now uh, uh, as far as this gas off problem it all depends on the applicator a lot of people don't realize this but if they apply it too thick too fast it never sets up it will off gas almost forever so when you're applying the spray foam insulation you have to hit it let it expand coat it again let it expand to fill the void you cannot just hit one thing and let it try to expand way out it doesn't do that it stays soft in the middle and it's always going to be putting off that gas and yes it does get smelly properly installed typically by the time the house is finished being built the off gassing is done and you don't have to worry about it improperly installed it can go on for years and years so your applicator is a big factor on how this is going to work you've just heard the best calls and questions from texas home improvement for more information about our show go to thipro.com 